were starting about 45 minutes late because we spent at least a good hour talking about houses and the ridiculous prices attached to houses. And do you know that there are houses in the Shreveport area that are over 15,000 square feet with full gems? Yeah, that's crazy. That's where you go to die. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Houses that big, that's like, that's like you find a corpse in a closet. Yeah, you would have no idea. You wouldn't. There's no way you could go through the whole thing. Nope. Nope. You wake up one day and there's a corpse in the closet and you're like, how long have you been here? Mm-hmm. You look like the guy who like, was supposed to fix my pool because I'm rich. <laughs> I have a guy who does that. I don't know. Like, I have people who do things for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you lose them, but apparently they die in closets. And then that's how like the plot of like Sinister plays out. And you're like, okay, now I'm living my own fate. Like I like to watch horror films. I don't want to live in a horror film. Yeah. Take my nice, normal, little small house situation. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm sorry. That's just baffling to me. I know. I don't, I don't get it. And I understand that we're like two millennials trying to look at the housing market, which is just not something that apparently we're built to do, but um, (laughs) we're like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) What? Who owns a $4 million house? How does that happen? I know. We're just like, what do you do with all of that space? What do you do with all that money? I, I just want to know the sort of people who wake up one morning and go, you know what I'm going to buy today? A $4 million house. <laughs> like, it, what? If you watch literally any House Hunters or House Hunters International, then apparently you can be anything. Because, like, you've seen all the memes for House Hunters that are like, I'm a, a part-time butterfly catcher and my husband paints colored pencils and we have a three million dollar budget and would like a house on the beach (laughs) that our friends can come and we can entertain twice a week or you know like (laughs) you know it needs to be facing the ocean as well as a pool yes i know meanwhile like eric and i are over here and we're like oh like that house doesn't need too much work like (laughs) maybe we can afford that (laughs) that'd be nice oh look it has a tree (laughs) I like trees. I like trees. Of course, Erica wants to go live out in the middle of nowhere, which is also where you get murdered. So, if yeah, my, yeah. my requests are like, no neighbors, please. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, I would like to be walking distance to a bar. No. Yeah, that's actually on my list of things I would like walking distance to a drinking establishment. Maybe Maryland's. I like Maryland's. They make good Bloody Marys. It makes me happy. I was like, otherwise you have to live close to downtown and I don't know what they have down there. God, you know, that is such a shame. And I have to say, that's one of my biggest things of Shreveport. They need to revitalize that downtown. We have a cool downtown area. It's Mm. just like, besides the casinos and like a couple strip clubs, like they just, nothing has popped up. You'd figure they would too, because it's a beautiful downtown. Yeah. Mm. I just, I just don't go into downtown very much, like ever. Wine Tiger is (laughs) down there. A few like sometimes if one of the restaurants has like a trivia competition, I would go, but even I haven't done that in a year. So <laughs> it's like, there's it's like, there's a disease or something going around where you shouldn't be hanging out with people for trivia. I don't I know. know. That's such a bummer. Strange times, strange times. So <laughs> rant over my bad. So what are we learning about today with science? Uh, <laughs> this stuff smells so good. I swear to God. Smells good, you say? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic segue. Did you not do that on purpose? (laughs) No, I didn't. I'm just smelling my chai tea mead, and it smells really good. 
Would you like to know how that works? With this really would, yeah. <laughs> the science of smell. Oh, Bubba. Well, I'm going to sit over here and drink my mead because I'm Katie and I'm not a scientist. <laughs> well, I'll try to tell you a little bit about how smell works because my name is Erica and I am a scientist. And this <laughs> is Southern, Southern Science. science. <laughs> no, I swear to God, I was just smelling my chai tea mead because it's mead that smells like chai tea. <laughs> smells good. Mm. So, yeah, so, so the science of smell. Yes, yeah, so this is our first listener requested episode. Color. So, uh, my brother actually requested that we do an episode on odors, odor eliminators, and how perfume works. So, all smelly things. I'm here for it. And I love perfume. So we'll talk about how perfume works. Um, kind of as our third thing that I was thinking we'd do. So, so we talk about good smells or bad smells? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, so I figured we'd talk about how smell works, uh, how odor eliminators work, so how to get rid of bad smells, and then how to make deliberate smells such as perfume. So those would be our kind of three, three points. Well, I so, know how smells work. You go... And then nice things go to your nose or bad things go to your nose. You just breathe in really hard. <laughs> I hope that sound was audible on the uh, recording. <laughs> I did too. Like, I smelled really hard just so everybody could hear it. It's it's like I tried really hard to smell loudly. <laughs> you put it in your glass so we get that echo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tasty. All right. So the key component to how humans can smell things is the interaction between odor molecules and odorant receptors or olfactory receptors or odor receptors. I've heard that word before, olfactory receptors. I've heard yeah. that. Okay. So the thing to remember about when you smell things is you are smelling a physical molecule. It's not like um, light where it's a kind of, or sound that it's a vibration that's hitting a receptor of your body. This is an actual physical molecule that is a particulate matter of the thing that you are smelling that goes up into your nose and binds to a receptor that it matches the shape of. Oh God. So when I'm like smelling bad stuff, I'm actually getting the bad stuff in my nose. Yes, that's kind of what oh, I wanted. Oh, no. If you smell like decay or poop or something, you have to think of that's actually little particulate poop matter that has wormed its way into, it's has evaporated into the air, is floating around, and then gets up in your nose holes. So, Oh, my God. I'm getting rid of my cat. Oh, no. <laughs> I, okay. Brie, you need to find somewhere else to live. Well, you oh, just have God. to get, you have to get the odor eliminating litter. If that's something you're into, because we'll talk about how odor eliminating products do their job. Okay. <laughs> so that'll be good. That's a little so, nervous here. About to have a conversation with my husband about this bad idea. Outside cat. Aww. So the way that the olfactory receptors work, the most popular theory, which is called the ototope theory, means that a small part of the odor molecule is binding to the receptor. Um, and that triggers a signal in the receptor. Now, these receptors are each on a different olfactory receptor cell in your nose. So mainly odors and in the process of smelling and, and olfactory receptors is studied in the nasal epithelium. But that's actually not the only place in your body that has olfactory receptors. And I'll list some of the other places in just a second. <laughs> I know, it's really weird. 
Yeah, super confused. Okay. Well, okay, I do know this. I do know that smell is tied to taste. They are very similar. Um, yeah. They're not, they work very similar in that, like, the taste molecules are also, to, to make taste happen, are binding, little molecules binding to the receptors in your tongue, which are not divided into separate regions of your tongue. Like, there used to be a taste map that you could draw yeah, on. Yeah, where you would, like, yeah, touch something really. flower. Yeah. Right. Really, the taste receptors are spread across your tongue. Uh, and that's actually the same way it is in your nose. So each olfactory receptor cell only has one type of olfactory receptor on it. But those olfactory receptor cells that are of that sp- specific receptor type, they're spread throughout your nasal epithelium. So it's not like there's one spot in your nose that smells all of the flower smells and another spot that smells all of the poop smells. Hey, so it's- okay. <laughs> It's all spread out, but all of those, say all of the ones that are designed to smell, you know, chai tea smells, all of those neurons actually meet up at the same spot in your brain. So even though those cells with their receptors that are sticking out of your nasal epithelium, you know, they are spread throughout the epithelium where they can be exposed to the air and like the odor molecules get trapped in the mucus and stuff like that in your nose. So they can catch a wide variety of smells, but then all of those matching olfactory receptor cells go to the same spot in the olfactory bulb. So there's a little nodule called a glomerulus and it's where all of the olfactory receptor cells, all of their little neuron ends meet up in one spot. So your olfactory bulb thinks all of the signals that come from this one spot all represent nice chai tea smells. And all of the smells that come from this other spot represent stinky poop smells, you know? Oh, okay, cool. Okay. They take the signals that were from the cells that were activated by the odorant molecules and kind of combine those. And once there's a strong enough signal that can activate the mitral cell, then that one cell will sing the signal to your brain and says, hey, we just smelled this thing. Okay, so you get to the like little bulb, and basically it's like a bunch of teachers grab you, put you in lines, and they're like, you're the good smell, you're the bad smell, you're this smell, you're this smell. And when there's enough of them, of one group, then you pop it off to the brain, and you're like, hey, by the way, we're probably standing next to chai tea mead. Yeah, exactly. So you've, you've built up enough of that signal to reach a signal threshold and say, yep, we're done, signal gets to go. Sweet. So, yeah. Nice. It's like, a, it's like a smell convention. Everybody yeah. has teams. Okay, very neat. Okay, that makes sense. So once that team is full, then you can send the signal and it goes all the way to your brain. Cool. Okay, very cool. And the theory is that the place in your brain where those signals go um, is thought to be very close to the amygdala. So it. I know that word. I couldn't begin to tell you where that is. It's the part of your brain that helps you like feel feelings and express emotions. That's why I know what uh, that is. Gotcha. So it's, I think, more commonly associated with fear and stress kind of responses is mostly where I hear it discussed. But that's why people think that smells can trigger emotional memories so well is because it's got your smells are tied so strongly to emotions that that helps them trigger memories. Now, that is interesting because that actually is something that comes up a lot in trauma work. People might smell. not be able to remember like specific sights or sounds, but they can usually like tell you a smell. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. Oh, yeah. From like a counseling perspective, smell is actually something that comes up a lot in trauma work, just from what I've read. That's, That's super interesting. interesting. Yeah. No, that, yeah. Oh, I didn't ever think about that. I guess location would matter. 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Same smells can be so specific. Like (laughs) there was one time that like one of the first cocktails that you had me try, I was like, this smells like the back like fireplace room of my grandparents' house that they used to live in. Like it was a very specific oaky smoky smell. And I'm like, no, this smells like this one room from my past. (laughs) I don't like it. No, it was not a smell I wanted to put in my mouth ever again, but it was, it <laughs> no, was weird. Like we were at a craft cocktail bar, yeah. 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 You liked it. I didn't like it. I mean, I, I like most things with alcohol. Although I will say, now that we're talking about like smells being associated with memory, I can't even smell a margarita. Like if I get the slightest hint that I can get any hint of tequila off something, it's gone. I can't touch it. Can't can't get anywhere near it. I imagine alcohols might be more capable of triggering things like that because they should be more smelly. Because we'll talk later about how um, things like perfumes, in order to facilitate the smelling of odorant molecules and their release into the air, like they're always dissolved in an alcohol that will help them evaporate and help you smell them. So that makes sense. Okay. So yeah, so that's kind of how the signal of an odor molecule gets relayed to your brain. And it all this happens very quickly, right? Like this isn't like a Oh yeah. Yeah, no. Super fast. Yeah, because this is this is a, a neural like trigger. Like the physically the, the odor molecule physically binds to the olfactory receptor that is on the olfactory receptor cell and then enough of that binding it does cause a signaling change within the cell, but that happens fairly quickly. And once enough odor molecules bind to the receptors on that one cell, that cell will send a signal up to the mitral cell on the other end of the glomerulus and say like, "All right, we are a go. There's enough molecules of this type out there." There's a smell in the area like right. this is happening and, okay and once enough other olfactory receptor cells throughout the nose and different parts of the nose agree with that and say yes there's a smell then that mitral cell gets the consensus yes there's enough of these other cells that are signaling that there's obviously a smell present here mm-hmm. but yeah it's, it's really fast so <laughs> When I first learned about how smell was working, which was in my undergrad, which was about a decade ago, given... Oh, man. That was uncalled for. Thanks for that. I went and looked in the textbook that I had for a um, a class that I took that was called Biochemistry of Specialized Tissues, and I really liked that class. I had a teeny tiny textbook because the textbook is actually only like a sixth of the actual textbook, and you could just buy it in sections if you were cheap, which I am. Which you are. (laughs) Fair enough. But it was funny because I, I, after looking up what the current thinking, you know, on olfactory receptors online is, I went and looked up what the textbook had to say about it. And it was like, the binding of odorants to as yet unidentified receptors makes the transmembrane potential of receptor neurons less negative. And then later it'd be like, no odorant receptor proteins have yet been identified or characterized. But that was in 1995 because I was using a very old textbook at that time. <laughs> Not only was Erica cheap and wanted to buy it piece by piece, she's like, do I really need the most updated version? Because Google's the thing. Google is the thing. Yeah. So using a a textbook that was 15 years out of date anyway, but the current version is that now there are over 400 different olfactory receptor molecules that have been identified. So with, with science, that's pretty recent. Like this means we've discovered this stuff pretty recently. 
So yeah, and, and it's a big deal because actually the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2004 was given to two people for the discovery of olfactory receptors. So I mean, it's big enough that their discovery won a Nobel Prize. And that was only in 2004. So That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. So the, the problem is, is even though people know what the molecules are, it's really hard to match those with a given smell especially because odorant mixtures can actually activate different, you know, cortical neurons at the end of the path signaling pathway than individual odorants. So you can smell individual things, but if you put them together in combination, they will activate more than just the sum of their individual activations. So they're synergistic that way. And is there like Um, something in your brain, like based on what you're saying, is there something in your brain that tells you good smell versus bad smell? So I know that's very like binary and I know that's not how that works, but like, well, I mean, the the thing is there's a bit of controversy on that. Some people say yes. And some people say no. Um, I don't think that there's like a part of your brain other than just the olfactory interpretive section of your brain uh, that can identify good versus bad. But I'm going to give you an example. I know the first time I ever smelled carbon monoxide, I had no idea what I was smelling, but I do remember I was like, that's not a good smell. Mm. I was like, that, that's a dangerous smell. Anything that smells like uh, very chemically, I know that like just naturally you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be in here. Like if a room smells like gas of a room and even like, even not knowing what it is, you know, you're like, oh, that's bad. But on the flip side of that, and I know this is weird and I'm going to admit it anyway, I like the smell of skunk. Okay. A lot of right, people like I know that's and some people don't. I mean, it's right. just... But it's like, you know, it's like good versus bad. Like the whole point of the skunk is to make predators go, oh, I don't want to eat you. Or I'm like, hey, you don't smell that bad. Like, <laughs> right. You know, it's like, so it's just, I'm curious as to if there's like a certain part of your brain that's like, ooh, get out. That's a bad smell. Like if there's like a stranger danger part, part of that, I guess. So this is kind of a um, a psychology question more than a biology question. Okay. So like I said, there's two thoughts on the matter. One is that there are categories of smells that people like and dislike universally, and that this is a based in evolutionary learning of things that are fruity and floral, they taste good, they're good for you, and they're not you're never going to hurt you to go towards those smells, and that flowers and stuff and plants evolve to produce those smells because they are attractants, because then animals will come and eat the fruit and then spread the seeds, right. and it's it's evolutionarily advantageous for some plants that reproduce in that fashion to smell nice. And then the theory was that um, smells that smell bad to us indicate unhealthy conditions that if our ancestors would have stayed near them, such as excrement, such as decaying bodies, things like that, we know that you hang around those too long, you can get sick and you can die. And so- we are evolutionarily would interpret those as quote bad smells. That makes sense. A lot of sense actually. Like, yeah. So there's like a stranger danger component where your body's like, you need to leave. This is a bad place to be. Right. Okay. So things, things that smell like this often contain, you know, bacteria or viruses and they're bad for you. We should leave. But that's not always the case. So there's been other research, um, especially there was like a U.S. Army study that says that there's no such thing as a universal bad smell. Because apparently, like the army was trying to develop a stink bomb that could was universally disliked that they could use as a deterrent, and there was no single smell that they could find that was universally disliked. Like this doesn't list specifically, but this is, I mean, like decay, you know, um, 
putrescence. Um, oh, that's a fun word. Say that again. Putrescence. Oh my God. That's my new word. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. All right. So it's like if you grew up somewhere with an outhouse, you may not care about latrine smells. Ooh. And apparently in Europe, before refrigeration was invented, rotten meat smells were okay and or even liked because it means at least you had food, you know? Wow. So okay. There's another school of thought that smells just very situational. And it doesn't have to lean on these evolutionary underpinnings that it can just be whatever you grew up with. And there's, they've done some studies that show that infants don't display any sort of fragrance preference that's, uh, you know, common to their culture. It's not like taste where, you know, bitter tastes are bitter to infants and you hate them because it's evolutionarily associated with poison or mm -hmm. something like that. There doesn't appear to be such a hard line with smells. That's At least fascinating. That's what the other theory is. So those are kind of the two schools of thought on are there, quote, good smells and bad smells? Or is it all subjective? Well, I mean, that's fascinating because I spent a lot of time around farms when I was a kid. So, like animal smells don't bother me at all. Like if I walk into a house and it smells like animal, that does not bother me. Whereas like I've been with friends before who aren't animal people and they're like, like they, it makes them sick. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. I never right. thought so about that. It can be super situational. And apparently perfume marketing companies will use that because they can have smells that wouldn't normally be considered good smells, but as long as you tell people to think about them in the right light, then they can be perceived as favorable. So there was a perfume that was pitched as a romantic perfume, but it actually kind of smelled like metal, but it wasn't a great smell, but everyone's like, oh, this must be a good smell. Or people will buy, you know, what, what their mother's perfume smelled like. And so it'll remind them of that. And so there's a lot of associations that you can deliberately make that are influencing your smell choice. Oh, okay. So we've got some like deep psychology in the perfume <laughs> industry. That's oh, yeah. so interesting. And there's also studies that are like, they can pipe in the exact same odor molecules in, in this one study. And if you told people that they were smelling a cheese, they would mark it as a good smell. And if they, you told people they were smelling like gym shoes, they would mark it as a bad smell. But it was the same smell regardless. It was how they interpreted it. What? So. Okay. So, okay. That is super complicated. So our knowledge about smells is like very limited right now. We're still trying to figure out how this works. It still is. Yeah. That's cool. And you know what? I guess I never thought about it. There are certain smells that I, I catch sometimes. I'm like, oh, I don't like that. Maybe I like that. I don't know. Maybe. Mm. Especially with food. Mm -hmm. Food's a big one. I know you like some, some things you like, it's like everyone loves fried chicken, but I've got a thing about the oil. Like I don't like yes. where that smells. Yeah. If you smell a lot of the, the grease that's used for cooking. Yeah. That can turn on you real quick. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, this is weird. Cause I love fried chicken. I love what you just did with the oil. I'm going to thoroughly enjoy it, but like the oil itself is gross. That's super yeah. interesting. Okay. And, and while, while we're already on the kind of psychology angle of not even like how much does your thinking affect how you smell things, but how much does your smelling things affect how you think? There's not apparently much actual like scientific research into such things, but there have been studies with small populations. So there was this one study where uh, smelling good food makes people nicer. So the the premise of the study was that in a, there, uh, in a mall, an actor would like drop something and then ask 
people going by to help him like pick it up. And if he did that next to the Cinnabon, people would help him. And if he did that where people couldn't smell the Cinnabon, <laughs> then people were like, eh, whatever. But so if they're already like happy. It wasn't in the South. In the South, we help everybody who <laughs> drops stuff. But oh, well, I mean, okay, that's interesting though. I mean, and I guess that makes sense. I feel like some of my best memories are associated with like smells I remember from childhood with food, mm-hmm. you know, or like my most enjoyable times with people usually involve food. You know? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, you have a really strong smell that you can associate with that. And then it, it can have measurable effects on your behavior later. I mean, maybe small ones, but if you're in the mindset of saying like, oh, this smells good. This reminds me of, you know, Thanksgiving at grandma and grandpa's house, then you're in a good place in your mind and you're more likely to be helpful or be in a good mood or whatever. So, well, yeah, and I'm jumping immediately and I don't believe they can cure cancer or anything, but I'm also jumping to like essential oils. The idea that if you burn scents when you study and things like that, like you study better, you're more calm, things like that, rather than like, you know, going to sit by like a trash compactor. I don't know if I could, if I could study next that would to a trash probably be distracting. But what they do say about smells and tastes, um, it's not that study that, Smelling it while you study helps, but you can use the smells as an additional associative trigger. So like if you study while you chew, you know, winter mint flavored gum, and then during the test, you also choose winter mint flavored gum, then that strengthens the recollection to what you were studying the last time you had that flavor of gum. I don't know how like (laughs) peer reviewed that is, but I've heard that a lot that it's not that the gum helps it cement it in your mind, but it's just another connection that you can make to your mindset when you were studying. All right, guys. So if you're like Erica and I, we're coming up to the end of semester. Everybody chew winter mint gum when they're going over their study guide and then chew it again when you're actually like taking your test and we're all going to knock it out. (laughs) God. Okay. That is very interesting. Things I've never thought about with smell. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So that was pretty psychology heavy. I'm going to try to get back to some of my more science-based notes. Um, Hey, hey, hey. I like psychology heavy. This well, is a yeah, science I mean, podcast. I get it. It's not a social well, I mean, science podcast. It's a social science. But also, the thing is, there's not a ton of actual concrete evidence because olfactory receptors are a relatively newer discovery. Because, like, even once there were, you know, the receptors and their structures were actually identified, we can't exactly match those to all smells and figure out, you know, exactly what this one receptor means that you can smell. Now, there have been some studies that have worked on that. There was one study, it was pretty recent, it was a 2019 paper in PNAS that... PNAS? um, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a very reputable journal. Gotcha. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea what that meant. Thank you for that. All right. Like I said, it's hard to identify the function of these receptors because they're so often activated in combination that it's hard to pick out what one receptor is associated with what one smell. Um, but this what paper that I mentioned did try to find that. So what their study did was they took 332 people that had been, quote, previously phenotyped for their sense of smell, which means that they had them smell a lot of things. They would just smell an individual odorant and say the intensity and the pleasantness. So how strong of a smell is this? And is it good or bad? And they did that for over 300 people. And then they did high throughput sequencing of their genome and found what the big differences 
were between those people and tried to correlate those with the differences in what they smelled. So they would say out of the 300, there's these 10 people that all couldn't smell this one scent. Is there a common mutation in their odorant receptor genes that would explain, oh, it's probably these receptors that are keeping them from smelling that smell? So they did that. They identified what they thought were some putative correlations between the receptors and their odorant molecules. And then they confirmed that by taking the orthologs of those proteins, which means the same function and structure, but in a different creature. So they took the the orthologs of those olfactory receptors in either rodents or primates and mutated them and then showed that activation of those receptors correlated with the indicated intensity or pleasantness that the people reported. So they could show that, you know, if these people couldn't smell whatever bananas, I'm just going to say something, they couldn't smell bananas. So if we take that receptor that we think is responsible and we say, we're going to mutate it so that it can't be active. And then you put bananas on it and it doesn't respond. And the assay says, no, this didn't activate. And then you know that, yes, that was actually the one that was correlated with right. bananas. That's smell. the banana receptor. Yeah. Okay, cool. And there's such a huge variety of these receptors in the natural population, meaning like sometimes people just don't express receptors. Sometimes people have mutations and this will cause changes in intensity and pleasantness of all these different smells. And so genetic variation accounts what they say for the majority of people saying this is a good smell versus this is a bad smell. So that was their more recent study was that it, it's a matter of physically what can you smell what parts of your brain is it activating? And that comes from mutations in the shape of the receptor itself. And they, they kind of concluded that your genetic ancestry and gender and age also affect smell perception, but it was usually like a really small, like from their study of a few hundred people, they concluded that that could be like influencing maybe 5% of your, the vari variability in smells, that mostly it's a genetic variability thing. That's fascinating. I guess it's never occurred to me that there's certain people that can't smell things. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a pretty good nose. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't even wear perfume because I feel like I can't smell it at all. Oh, so. God, I can. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, too, I teach teenage boys. <laughs> yes. I, I All of the smells. All of the smells. Like when they discover Axe body spray. Woo! Choices. Not better. You're just covering it up. You're just adding to it. It's and you think, about, you think about too, like in with smell. I mean, even like something like a sommelier. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess there's something to that too, because the idea is like you know someone who does something like that should be able to like swirl a wine, smell a wine, and they can tell you the notes before they even taste it. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah, I have like, a pretty good sense of smell. I'm not. I'm not getting hints of like dark chocolate and cherry oak. When <laughs> I smell a wine, I'm like, smells like grapes. Smells like alcohol. Smells delicious. You know, like that. Right. that so there's people like, um, and also people who are perfume sommeliers. I think there's yeah. a word for them. I'm but, sure there's a word um, for it. Perfumiers. <laughs> right. They have to be able to pick out all these different notes in the perfume. So they must smell better than me. I'm telling you. And it's interesting to think that like genetics are tied to that. Like mm -hmm. some people are more predisposed to having like superhero smelling. Like, and I know that, I don't know if this, if you saw anything about this in like your research, but I know like a lot of pregnant women say mm. that their sense of smell gets like super strong when they're pregnant. And I'm wondering if there's anything about that. That's interesting. I didn't come across anything that was talking about that. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised though, because your body changes a lot of what 
what, what proteins it's producing throughout that time. A lot of stuff about how your body's functioning gets changed when you're busy constructing another human. So I would not be surprised that anything gets changed. Oh, <laughs> That's so cool. I'm, I'm I'm sitting over here and I'm like, God, I never actually thought about smell. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there are good smells. There are bad smells. I wear deodorant. So I smell nice. Like, you know, but it's like, I never, I never, I guess, thought about the science of smell. But there's still a ton we don't know about the science of smell. Like, you know, how I, earlier I said that the olfactory receptors are mostly in the nasal epithelium, but actually. Yeah, no, I do remember you saying that. Yeah. The mRNA that encodes the olfactory receptors, so like when you have DNA and then you make RNA of just the proteins you want to make in that cell, and then you make the proteins using the RNA as a guide. So the RNA that encodes for at least one type of olfactory receptor can be found in every human tissue, all of them. All of your tissues are making at least one olfactory receptor. This study- I'm smell with uh, my elbows. And they would mean uh, of like every human tissue, they wouldn't say elbow skin. They would just say your skin somewhere. Your skin. (laughs) Your skin has olfactory receptors in it. I have this 2018 review from Physiological Reviews that was kind of summarizing all of the different studies about the mRNA for olfactory receptors in different tissues. So overall, they looked at over 45 tissues and all of them had at least one transcript encoding for an OR and their functions are crazy. So lots of different researchers have tested what the function of these olfactory receptors would be. So I just wanted to read a few of them. So the olfactory receptors in your blood, when they're activated, they enhance the migration and creation of new blood vessels. In your heart, activating these olfactory receptors will change the frequency and the contractile force of your heartbeat. So based on what my heart smells... My heart yeah, it's what your heart itself smells, not what like your brain tells your heart to do. Like your brain says, oh, that's a danger smell. Speed up your heartbeat. No, this is olfactory receptors on your heart itself. In your guts, there are olfactory receptors that they bind an odor molecule. They can cause you to release serotonin. That would be okay. That would be interesting. In the testes, if you look at sperm, they have olfactory receptors that when activated will increase the beating of their flagella. So probably make them swim faster. So wait, do they say like what the smells are that activate these? Some of them. So like that last one for the testes, the olfactory receptor is OR75A and OR4D1, which the, and the odorants for those are Mirac and PI23472. Wait, so like, Googling. So I'm like, I don't know that they're even like regular smells. They're just, they count as odor molecules. They bind to olfactory receptor proteins. Spell um, the Mirac smell? M-Y-R-A-C. Okay, let's see. Um, what else did I highlight as interesting? So lung, if you activate ORs there, it inhibits histamine-induced contraction. So it changes how your lungs contract. In your skin, oh yeah, because I did highlight some for skin. If you activate olfactory receptors in your skin, it enhances cell proliferation, migration, and wound healing oh. and cause regeneration of keratinocyte monolayers. And I think a lot of that was observed in, in vitro in a dish just based on the wording um, of keratinocyte monolayers. But Mirac is an orange smell, by the way. It's citrus, particularly uh-huh. orange. Nice. So, apparently Thank orange is an aphrodisiac smell. So, okay, continue. That was the end of my list, but a good way for me to transition to say that there is no official aphrodisiacs because humans don't use pheromones. 
the theory, again, is more of a psychological one of when you smell nice, it's like wearing sexy lingerie or cute clothes or nice makeup. It's just you act more confident because you feel good about yourself. (laughs) But there is a theory about whether or not humans used to use pheromones. So there is still kind of a theory that people can choose mates based on subconsciously detectable smells that indicate your immune system capabilities. So that are associated with what they say here is your major histocompatibility complex, which these are, these are proteins that are expressed on a cell surface that let your immune cells target the other cells. Okay. Um, like it gives your T cells something to target. People tend to non-randomly select mates that have a different immune system indicating olfactory profile than themselves, which would theoretically give their offspring a better resistance to different diseases, is a theory. That is interesting. I'm Googling that. Like immune system smells humans. I don't know. That's exactly what I Googled, actually. I was like, immune (laughs) system smells people like. (laughs) So let's see. The, the theory is that the way that people, because they, it's been statistically shown that people tend to choose mates with, that have a different um, immune profile than themselves. And the, the theory, the inference is that that decision is being subconsciously made based on the smell of the other person. But no one's identified the molecule that is indicative of the immune gene group. Obviously, people still sell pheromone perfumes. So people still want that to be true, but the the theory is that other animals that even mammals that use pheromones to indicate sexual availability, uh, you know, stage in a mating cycle, uh, they have an extra organ that humans just don't have. So they have an a structure in their nose that's called the the veronasal organ or VNO that is designed to pick up the pheromone, but it's debatable. Like do humans not have one at all? Or it's like the appendix and we have one, but it doesn't work anymore. So like that's devolved it. Like we don't use it anymore. Right. Yeah. Like like we we're busy picking mates consciously now and not just based on whoever's capable offspring at that time. So that's another area that's apparently up for debate and interpretation because it's still an um, ongoing area of research. Sweet. Okay. God, that's so much science in like one little podcast. <laughs> Especially science where it's like we don't have all the answers, but the answers we do have are terrifying and weird and crazy. And you can smell with your elbows. <laughs> and more importantly, you can smell with your heart, which yeah. I just have so many questions. You smell with your heart. Oh, God. That's not where I went. I went immediately, too. Like, how close does the smell have to be? Like, if your chest is split, I'm wondering if it has more to do with your heart smelling or more to do with the fact that your heart's like, you are way too close. Something is way too close to me if I can smell it and you need to run away. I I have to assume that these are molecules that are dissolved in your bloodstream. Yeah. They're through a liquid medium. Oh, God. But while we're on it and we're talking about things that you can smell, I did want to go ahead and talk about a few things about perfume. Someone's selling a perfume that claims to be a pheromone. No, it's not an aphrodisiac. And designing perfumes can be hard whenever, like I said, there's no universal good smells or bad smells. It's not only cultural and it's based on genetics and it's also based on age so like people of different ages tend to buy perfumes either based on what celebrities are wearing or based on what their partner likes or based on what their parents wore so it's like there's cultural implications of that too 
That's true, but most perfumes are either based in fruit smells or floral smells oh, for women. For, I know once we get to men, we get into things like cedar like or like applewood, which is really weird. But yes. like female smells, like quote-unquote female smells, are generally floral smells or fruit smells. I, I would say mostly for like for Western fragrances, I would say that that's true. I don't want to make like a global implication. But oh, I didn't even think about that. Good point. Yeah. There's no official groupings or categorizations um, for smells, but a lot of the ones that you think about would be floral and fruity. There's green, herbaceous, woody, amber, animalic, musk, and oriental. So those are like the different like categories of smells, but they're like unofficial categories. Those are the ones that are commonly used, but they're not like official categories. Perfumes can also be just categories based on their molecular structure, which is a little bit more concrete and not as open to interpretation. But the way a lot of perfumes are designed, it is based on like specific, like I think that this perfume should be reminiscent of, I don't know, Tahitian sunrise. It feels like a name of a body wash I have. Okay. Um, Fair enough. So yeah. It's going to smell like uh, papayas first and then ocean water and then sand. I don't know. So what they can do actually is perfume companies actually will often take a smell that they want to mimic and put it in an airtight container, collect all of the aromatic molecules that evaporate off of that fruit, say, over an eight-hour period, send that to be characterized via a, a gas chromatography mass spectroscopy, and from there, identify the molecule and try to synthesize it for future perfumes. So that's the way a lot of perfumes are designed is we want to find what the specific odorant molecules that emit from this object are, and then can we replicate those? So That's so cool. And Which so, makes me wonder, I've got a couple perfumes I've got in the back of my head, and I'm like, I wonder how they got that smell. Like one of my perfumes is just called Paris, and I'm like, I've never been to Paris, but it's in an Eiffel Tower bottle, and I like it. Like, <laughs> like obviously Paris smells like flowers, so whatever. So the thing about most perfumes is they actually contain three different layers of smells. In liquid perfumes, usually the smell molecules are dissolved in a mixture of alcohol and water. And the kind of dilution of the perfume oil in the alcohol and water mixture kind of changes the classification of the perfume. So you see some perfumes are marketed as, you know, just a, a perfume, basically. And that means that it's at least 25% perfume oil. And the perfume oil is whatever has been pressed or steamed or separate, chemically separated from a smell. Plant. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the smelly oil. Yeah, yeah. So if you got a lot of that, then it's a parfum. If it's an eau de parfum, then you get like 15 to 18% of the perfume oil. If it's eau de toilette, it's only 10%. And if it's eau de cologne or body spray, then it's even less than 10% perfume oil. So the intent, the concentration of the perfume oil is what makes those designations. So if you wonder why something's an eau de toilette and something is an eau de cologne, that's the difference. Oh, I never even thought about it, but that's interesting. I just thought people were trying to be fancy. <laughs> but then, so it has actual classifications. And so in each of those, 
like I said before, the way you smell things is obviously that the odorant molecule was dissolved in the dilute alcohol mixture. So a, a liquid you know, with alcohol in it. And then as the alcohol evaporates, it carries the odorant molecule with it and disperses that in the air. And then that's when it floats into your nose and binds to your receptors. And that's how you can smell it. But most perfumes are designed to have three different stages of smells based on the orders in which the molecules evaporate. So the molecules that are released first, that evaporate off of your skin first, would be called the top notes. And you usually smell those like within the first 15 minutes of you applying the perfume. And then after that, you'll get what they call heart notes, because that's like at the heart of the perfume, you know? The heart of the perfume. Whatever smell you associate that perfume with, that's probably the heart note, because that's what lingers on your skin for like three to four hours after you apply it. So like you get that cucumber melon. That's the cucumber melon smell. If that's what you smell for the most part, it's not what you smell when you first spray it, because sometimes the initial spray is something that's going to like get your attention, but it would be obnoxious if it hung around for four hours. (laughs) And so you're like, that would give you a headache if you smelled that that strong for four hours. So it's just going to be something to get your attention for 10 minutes and then will evaporate into a more comfortable smell. And so the heart note is what you're going to be smelling stronger for like the four hours. And then after that, you have what they call the base notes. And then those are the ones that don't evaporate from your skin as fast. They stay on your skin longer for like five to eight hours. And those tend to be your musky, watery, mossy, woody, like not the, the bright and flowery smells. They're more of like a subtle earthy smell. Okay. So is the category that's more commonly used for base notes. And when you spray your perfume, you should spray it or dab it, but you should never do the thing where you spray your wrists and then rub them together because that heat and that friction will just destroy the top notes because it'll evaporate way faster than it's supposed to. And you'll lose a lot of the time you were supposed to have the heart notes too, because it speeds up the evaporation process with the friction and the heat. And you're going to lose half the value of your perfume by doing that. What? Oh my God. Think about all the money I've wasted. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. That's what it's in the movies. I know, but it's, it's, it's a, fake thing for movies. It doesn't actually like, if you want to do that to transfer smell, just dab some on both wrists or dab some on both sides of your neck or like, yeah, don't, don't rub them together. Don't rub that business. Oh my God. It wastes your perfume. So, but also speaking of wasting your perfume, it's always recommended to store it out of direct light because light can destroy the um, aromatic molecules. And also if you keep it in a spray bottle and not like it just in a vial, because the air can also sometimes lead to oxidizing the. And don't leave it in a hot car. Correct. Also that. Yeah. So keep it somewhere cool and dry and dark. (laughs) Got that one. I knew about the hot car. That's interesting. Okay. Very cool. Look at all that perfume stuff. And I love perfume. I wear perfume all the time. Look at all that extra perfume. No more rubbing my wrist. Dab gently. Yes. Dab gently to keep my top notes so I can have heart notes. Yeah. Keep keep your top notes. Enjoy those for 15 minutes. And then you have a longer lasting smell if you don't, if you don't rub it. So I think that's what I had on good smells. But if you have a smell that you don't like, the question is, do you just have to deal with it until it diffuses naturally? Or is there a technology that can let you get rid of bad smells? Febreze. Yes, exactly. And Febreze is a legitimate odor eliminator. Yeah, Febreze is awesome. 
<laughs> it helps for sure. Febreze is the best. Um, what makes Febreze different from, say, other things that just cover up bad smells, <laughs> Axe Body Spray, <laughs> is that actually it does remove the odor molecules from the air and makes it where you cannot smell them. So, or at least makes it where they're not free floating molecules that can then bind to your olfactory receptors. So the main ingredient in Febreze is called cyclodextrin and it is a circular funnel shaped carbohydrate molecule that usually they get from cornstarch and hydrophobic molecules like the odorants are trapped inside of that round funnel. And so literally the Febreze molecules are trapping the odorant molecules inside of them and then that way the odorants can't get to your nose holes and make you smell a thing so so it works for real it literally does work yeah i mean chemically it uh, it will get rid of good smells as well as well as bad smells because it's just going to bind smells and often if the febreze includes a scent of its own then it's just going to have to be a water soluble odorant molecule and not a hydrophobic molecule it, w- it would be a odorant molecule that is not the kind that binds to the cyclodextrin. I was just about to ask that. I was like, okay, I hear you, but Febreze comes in smell. Right, but it's just, it's a different kind of smell molecule. Okay, it's not, okay. It's not the type of smell molecule that's, I don't know, stinky gym feet or whatever, yeah. whatever shape of the stinky gym feet She's molecule clean is. Clean linen, clean linen right. smell, yes. Right. Oh, and I was going to say, I haven't been citing my sources, that, but you can get that information about Febreze from a lot of different sources. A lot of my stuff from about the perfume came from this really healthy How Stuff Works article that's just called How Perfume Works. Hey, she looked <laughs> a non-scientist name, that one. Yeah. Uh, How Stuff Works is a pretty good resource. That They're real good about like citing their sources and, and everything. So it's a it's a good website if you just want a summary on something. What's it called? How Stuff Works. Oh, and- yeah. I've done How Stuff Works. Yeah. They have a lot of good stuff. I was just like, who has a good overview on perfume that I could How sum? Stuff Works, man. They have the coolest stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, there are other products that are designed to keep smells, offending smells away from you. So a popular one being Poopery. But it works differently in that it's supposed to theoretically like form a protective film of oil on the surface of the toilet bowl water. And so it prevents the smell molecules from escaping until they are flushed and removed. So I suppose that's a thing. But the problem is a lot of air fresheners are just supplying a new scent rather than doing any sort of odor elimination. For example, if you get cat litter. You can get odor eliminating cat litter. You can also get scented cat litter, and those are very different things. You can get some odor eliminating cat litter that is also scented. I don't do that because I don't want to risk the scent being something that the cats don't want to go near. Yeah, that's true. You don't want to turn the cats off their own litter box. We have like a little powder that we sprinkle, like, you know, like once a day, and I feel like it helps a lot. Like it hasn't bothered our cat, but like I definitely don't spray and do stuff like that in her litter box. Right. Because you don't want to turn them off to it. Uh, yeah, I was going to tell the tell the story of my disastrous encounter with a air freshener that was not an odor eliminator and was instead just an extra odor that's going to cover stuff up. Because when I first started college, undergrad, it was literally my first week in the dorm. I don't even think that school had started yet. It might have been the week I was there before classes for band camp. And my roommate... So there's only two steps to make an easy Mac, right? Add water and microwave. Right. She skipped the first step and went straight to microwave. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's no, no. 
But that's it, how you it, get burnt. Yeah, it, it caught on fire and it melted really, really bad. And uh, she panicked and opened the microwave and this like acrid black cloud of smoke came billowing out and filled our dorm room and it was horrible. And the, her first response was to go get the bathroom spray and spray it around. But it was not an odor eliminator. It was just a, here's a nice smell kind of air freshener. And so then it smelled like burnt plastic and oranges. And it was... Very, very bad. So yeah, just be aware not all like bathroom sprays and air fresheners are actually odor eliminators. You should look for a product that's actually designed to do that thing. Febreze or the Febreze plugins. Those work too. They probably actually have the cyclodextrin in them. Yep. Yep. Nope. Definitely learn that the hard way. You can't just play like spray like apple cinnamon glade on top of everything and expect it to be okay. That's not how that works. No, no. I mean, nope. like you said, the glade especially, it can get you some nice smells, but may not necessarily remove it. It is the not an odor eliminator. Because <laughs> um, then you get burnt macaroni and cheese orange smell, which, you know, I just don't feel like that. I would never wear that as a perfume, you know, personally. I don't know. Like we said, there's no universally dislike smell. So maybe someone would, but yep. not me. <laughs> oh, and speaking of uh, getting rid of, of smells that just with more strong smells, that's kind of also the lighting a match to get rid of a fart smell. Like the methane is not like, there's not that much methane in a fart. What you're actually doing is just smelling the sulfur dioxide from the match instead. So Damn. Okay, it's just okay. a stronger smell that's matching it. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Matches that. I mean, fire is a, a strong smell. Right. Any sort and of burning you, is a strong smell. I mean, even if it's just like you're just burning the gas, if you, I, I had to look this up. If you do try to light a fart on fire and join the blue flame club, yep. which I don't know if that's official term or just the term my dad uses, what you're probably lighting when you light a fart is hydrogen, which doesn't actually have a smell. Oh, so. Okay. Interesting. You're not getting you're not getting rid of all of the stinkiness if you light your fart. Oh. So you're just making <laughs> it look cool. Yeah, yeah, that's just but, you know there are worse things than making it look cool. Like I'm here for that. And then I the last thing I saw on how to get rid of bad smells was something that I couldn't confirm. I saw it in a few sources, but the way that it was said was very similar each time. So maybe everyone's just citing the same source. But theoretically, it used to be a thing for air fresheners to include formaldehyde as a nasal anesthetic. And so you just wouldn't smell anything. Wow. So, okay. It would just make it where you didn't smell anything until all of the smells went away and it stopped deadening your nose. <laughs> so it just, it seems bad. I would prefer that not to be the way that odor eliminating works. I want it to actually get rid of the odor molecules, not just kill my nose cells and make it where they don't work anymore. <laughs> but like I said, I read that that was a thing. I couldn't find a lot of independent verification of that being a thing. Maybe I didn't know the right things to search to confirm that. <laughs> interesting. Interesting things. All of so the interesting I, things. I think that was all I planned on mentioning about how to smell good smells and bad. Um, so yeah, I think that's it for me. Sweet. Dude, I've learned a lot today. Like with just smell in general, like things I've never thought about. Like I keep Googling like different smells that do things to people. Like every time you say something, I'm like, I'm Google. I'm going to, that's a, that's worth a Google. That's worth a Google right there. I was like, <laughs> so now I've, I found, a, I also found a list of real odor eliminating products. So I might send that to you if you want to post that on the website. Real odor eliminating Real products. odor eliminators, not the Glade. So you don't end up with burnt macaroni and cheese Glade flavor, yep. um, which is not a popular perfume. So, no. yeah, I mean, before we start to wrap up, I would like to go ahead and do a mental health minute for this week. If you've yeah. got anything. 
I guess my mental health minute was more of a remember which of your tasks are glass balls and which of them are rubber balls that will bounce. Uh, I don't know if uh, everyone's heard that adage, but it's just, you have to remember of the things that you're trying to juggle in your life, the tasks that you're trying to keep up in the air. Some of them are rubber balls. And if you drop them for a bit, they'll bounce back and you can pick them right back up again. And some of them are glass balls and you have, and you can't drop them. Uh, because they're important. And part of learning to take care of yourself is learning which of the things in your life you can drop for a bit and which of the ones you are actually have to kind of keep a hold on. And Katie and I decided that for this week, the podcast was a rubber ball and neither of us was in a position to record earlier in the week. Uh, We just had a lot of work stuff and mental health stuff come up and it became a bit too much to juggle. So that's why there wasn't an episode last Saturday. So but you know what? We're back. Back, baby. Unless more <laughs> glass balls show up, and then we might take another week off. It is the holidays, and it's final season. We're doing our best. We're okay. doing the best we can. And that kind of leads into my mental health minute, which, um, and I want to like to say, Erica, I've never actually heard that before, but I'm oh, so really? stealing it. I love that glass balls and rubber balls. That's brilliant. I love that. But my the first place I heard that was the the dorm I was just describing that experienced the horrible Easy Mac disaster. Uh, my RA. For that hallway was the first one I ever heard use that term. So mm-hmm. I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. I love it. Um, my mental health this minute is actually like really straightforward for this week, and it's something I feel like I've told people a couple times this week that aren't myself. And then I've also had to remind myself of it, and that is that no is a complete sentence. And you know, if you aren't available to do something, or if or if you're overwhelmed right now, you don't owe every single person in your life an explanation. You're a grown up. Um, I'm assuming you're a grown up if you're listening to this podcast. If you're not, um, you will be a grown up one day. And no is a complete sentence. And not everyone in your life deserves or should require a full explanation about why you can or can't do things. Okay. So that's fine. It can be enough to say, just, no. I can't do that right now. No. 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 Nine. <laughs> also, <laughs> different ways you can say it. You can Google all the different ways you can say no online. But yeah, that's mine. So yeah, if you guys want to get in touch with us, don't forget, you can send us an email at southernsciencechicks at gmail.com, or we have our awesome new social media stuff posted up that Erica's been working on. If you want to get that plug, Erica. We are Southern Science Chicks on both Facebook and Instagram. I've been trying to post news stories on Facebook and links to, you know, the when episodes come out, stuff like that. Um, I would also say I will have to start doing the typical podcaster plug of, of rate and review. Um, I don't think we've said that yet, um, even though... Oh, definitely haven't. And I wasn't really, like, big on... Because everyone says it. And if everyone says it, then it doesn't mean anything. Like, exactly. know that if you care, you want to rate and review. But aside from our self-esteem and, and making us feel good, which would be awesome if you did leave a nice rating and comment. I would say that if when people are trying to find us, when you search on iTunes for Southern Science, we're actually the fourth thing that comes up. And we're behind people that do not have Southern or science in their names. So (laughs) there are other podcasts that come up when you search us. And so theoretically, if you were to rate a review, then that might might affect the iTunes algorithm. You hear a lot of people talk about, quote, the algorithm. Um, and to be honest, nobody knows how iTunes calculates their, you know, which things algorithm. show. Algorithm. 
And uh, theoretically, it's just more about like subscriptions and downloads and all that jazz. But having ratings and reviews does let other humans, not just the iTunes algorithm, but other humans see that it's a legitimate podcast that people that humans listen to. So if you wouldn't mind, that would help because it's kind of a bummer to not be searchable behind in, until other people who aren't Southern or science come up. So Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, so rate and review, guys. Rate and review us. <laughs> all right, well, we'll see you all next week. It's been fun. Uh, go smell some fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Do you ever tell the friends we 